How's everybody doing today? Hey, happy Father's Day. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm excited to be speaking with you today. It's going to be a great day. Do we have any fathers in the room? If you're a father, would you raise your hand? Can we give all of them a round of applause? Man, Father's Day is all about bragging on your dad, tell him he's awesome, tell him he's the greatest. We know that you're exaggerating, but we want to hear it anyway. Um, and man, it's just a great day to honor your father. Um, I got a card this morning from my daughter, and I want to share it with you, Zach, if you throw it up on the screen. Um, it says, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Hands down, you're the best dad in the entire world. Yeah, I know she's exaggerating, but Christine told me that those are oranges. Those are oranges, not actually butt prints. So we'll see. We'll see. I got to check, change her diaper at some point. So, um, all right. Well, I have been a dad for the past two years, um, and it's been amazing. It's been such a privilege. Um, I love my daughter so much, and a lot of you know her, uh, Lennon, and she's just the sweetest, so amazing. Uh, and we're also expecting another little girl um, in about a month. So July 22nd, uh, it's gotten here real, real quick. So thank you. We're excited for that. Um, a whirlwind of emotions, terrified, anxious, excited, all of that stuff. Um, but having a two-year-old, we're in a season of life right now uh, that a lot of people call the terrible twos, right? Anybody ever heard of the terrible twos? Yeah. They don't call it the terrible twos because two-year-olds are terrible necessarily, um, but they call it that for one reason, and that's because of tantrums, right? Tantrums. Everybody's experienced a tantrum, whether it was a stranger at a store, your own child, maybe it was you. Um, at some point, you've experienced a tantrum, right? And what that is, it's just this emotional outburst, uh, kicking, screaming, crying, yelling, because you can't get what you want, right? That's the, that's the key right there, you have to understand. It's happening because you can't get what you want. And, um, you know, for my two-year-old, she has a tantrum because she hasn't fully developed um, her emotional stability, her words, all the stuff that she needs to be able to handle situations uh, with maturity, right? Um, and so a lot of times when we tell her no or we tell her she can't have something, it results in a tantrum. Um, lately, going to the grocery store is a whole new experience. So a, a year ago, um, I would say we had a ton of fun going to the grocery store. I would take Lennon uh, just to give Christine a little break. The two of us would love to go to the grocery store together. I'd strap her in the little seat up front, and we would go around the store and just kind of make faces at each other, have fun. She would just take it all in. She felt like she was on a little field trip or a joyride. Um, but now... Now it's a little different. Um, now she has a little bit of independence. She doesn't want to be held down. Even in the car seat, um, she has learned to say things like, it's too tight, or my back hurts, all of these things to get our attention. She knows how to get our attention, right? Two-year-olds know how to play you. you you've learned this. Um, but, you know, we don't listen to her. We tell her, no, it's not too tight. We've checked it. It's not too tight. Um, but anyway, she does this at the grocery store now. So we put her in the seat, strap her in. Uh, we take off probably not even 10 minutes in the grocery store, and she starts saying, too tight, daddy holds you. And so that's her way of asking me to hold her. And I say, no, like we're almost done. Hang in there, be patient. Uh, and we keep going, but she doesn't like that answer. So again, 
not too much longer. She'll say, Daddy holds you. I say, no. Um, and she doesn't like the answer. So she starts trying to work her way out of this car s- or little seatbelt herself. And while she could probably easily just little clip the thing and, you know, undo it, she gets out the most awkward way possible, just, you know, getting her leg out one at a time, and she's, like, stretching herself and bending over, just trying to maneuver herself out of this seat. And once she finally gets free, she stands up, and she'll say, Daddy, hold you. And before I can even say no, she just kind of leaps at me, right? Um, She just planks free falls on me, (laughs) expecting me to catch her, and I do. Um, But once she's out, there's no putting her back in. If I do, it results in a tantrum uh, because she's tasted freedom. She, she doesn't want to be held down, right? She just wants to run around the store. She wants to play tag with me. She wants to eat all the cookies. She wants to do everything that it sounds way more fun than shopping for groceries and being productive, right? <laughs> and so if I try to put her back in, it results in a tantrum. And it's the same way at home. Uh, if I'm trying to have a conversation with Christine, she is in tunnel vision. She can only see what she wants what I need to do has nothing to do with what she needs to do, right? And so if I'm trying to have a conversation or we have to be at church on time or there's a time limit on something, none of that stuff matters to Lennon because there's this desire in her heart, this innate desire she was born with to get what she wants. She just wants what she wants and she doesn't want anything to stand in her way. She doesn't want me to tell her no because all, can, all she can see is what she wants, Right? And so I'm a fixer. Um, I just want to solve the problem. I view a tantrum as a problem. Um, And so I'm trying to fix it, to move beyond it, to get to a place where we can never have a tantrum again. And so after all the seeking, all the advice, um, research that I've done, here's what I've come up with. You can't stop it. You can't stop it. Like, it's inevitable. These are going to happen. And it's because of that desire in her heart to get what she wants. And as I'm trying to teach my daughter and train her up and and all of this stuff, I'm learning so much. And it's amazing how God tends to put us in situations where we have to teach others. And in the process, he teaches us way more, right? He teaches us way more in the process of teaching. And what I'm learning is that what Lennon needs and what I need aren't all that different. Because I still have the same desire to get what I want. All these years later, I have the same desire to get what I want. And sometimes it doesn't matter what God wants or what my spouse wants or what my kids want. All I can see is what I want, what's in front of me. And so that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today is that that God has this great plan for us and this great life that we can experience. But what he's calling us to is contrary to what the, the culture tells us. What he's calling us to is not to make ourselves happy, to fill ourselves up and to get what we want. What he's calling us to is a life of service. It's a life of surrender. And so we're going to read a story today um, in the book of 1 Kings. It's chapter 12 uh, about a man named Rehoboam. And uh, this story um, is happening just after King Solomon has passed away. And so Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Uh, And Solomon was one of the wisest men on the earth. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote the Song of Songs, which is like a little romance novel tucked in the Bible um, that a lot of you may have just flipped over. But 
he is a wise man. If anybody was going to be great, if anybody was going to make an impact, it was going to be someone like this. But Solomon had a guilty pleasure, and that pleasure was women. He was a ladies' man. And in fact, in the chapter before this, it says that he had 700 wives and 300 mistresses, a thousand women in his palace. Can you imagine that? I can't get over it. Um, so it's, it's unreal to me. Um, I mean, sister wives, nothing on this guy. Like Bachelor, whatever trashy TV show you watch, none of those guys have anything on Solomon, right? And so Solomon had a guilty pleasure, and this drove him away from God. It drove him away because he started to place all of his worth in ma- like money, power, women, whatever it was, all of this stuff, these material things were drawing him away from God. And it says that towards the end of his life, he turned away from God. And so God was frustrated, and God made a promise in that moment to humble the family of Solomon. And that might sound harsh, um, but I want you to pay close attention to the word humble. He's not saying he's going to punish him. He's not going to destroy him. He just wants to humble him. He wants to give him some perspective of who he is and what God's calling him to. He wants to help him understand his rightful place. And, and so he's making this promise to humble the family of Solomon. And that's where we're going to pick it up here in 1 Kings chapter 12. So let's go ahead and read verse 1. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt, so, that, uh, so they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. So what's happening here is Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, is stepping up to king. His father passed away, and now it's his turn to take on the reign of king. And Jeroboam used to serve Solomon. But because Solomon was harsh and forced the labor on him and treated him terrible, Jeroboam fled. He didn't want to serve him anymore. And so when they hear that Rehoboam is coming up and he's king now, Jeroboam comes back to make a deal with him. And the deal is, if you'll like lighten the load, if you'll stop the heavy yoke, if you won't force labor on us, if you'll treat us like human beings, then we'll serve you. We fled from your father, but if you'll do this for us, we'll serve you. And so here's what Rehoboam says. Uh, He says, go away for three days and come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders that had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, If today you'll be a servant to these people and serve them and give them favorable answer, they'll always be your servants. If today you will serve them, they'll always be your servants. What the elders are recommending here is what we call servant leadership. It's uh, this model of what you want your employees to do, you do it first, and they'll follow, right? You're setting the expectation from the top down, and they follow. 
rather than just forcing them, managing and dictating what they do, right? And what the elders are saying is that if you do this, they'll follow you. If you meet them with conflict, they'll follow you. But if you meet them with love, if you meet them with service, they'll meet you with love and with service. And so they're giving him this opportunity to say that, that Rehoboam, you have a chance to make a change, right? You can make a change right now. You just have to serve him. And so let me clarify something real quick, talking about serving. Um, serving and being taken advantage of are two totally different things. And in our culture, we tend to kind of um, like make them the same, you know, like serving and being a servant and, and being taken advantage of are all kind of in the same realm. But the call for Rehoboam to serve was not for the people under him to just relax, drink wine, eat grapes, and, and he was going to take on all the work. That was not what they were asking him to do. If he did that, he'd be a terrible king. The kingdom would fall, right? So the call for him to serve was simply to love, to honor, to show him respect, give him the benefit of the doubt, actually pay attention to what's going on in their lives, ask about their families, all of these things. Like It's as simple as actually caring, showing some compassion for these people. And so I love the advice that the elders give him because they're, they're basically saying, Rehoboam, you could change the culture. You could change the culture. Before there was conflict. We saw what happened to your father. We saw how he led and valuable people left. People didn't want to be treated that way. But you have the ability to actually change the culture. So Rehoboam is faced with the advice. If I serve, they'll serve. If I serve, they'll serve. Verse 8. But Rehoboam rejected the advice. He rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. So he rejects the advice. And, and I just want to point out real quick that sometimes when we ask for advice, we're not looking for the truth. It's like when you were a child and you would ask your mom, hey, can I have some ice cream? And she'd say, no, let's talk about it after dinner. You don't like that answer, you go to your dad. You say, hey, dad, can I get some ice cream? Because you've already made up the outcome you want in your mind. You already know the decision, the answer that you want to receive. You're just hoping that they're going to say yes. But they don't say yes all the time, right? And so you don't like seeking advice and getting affliction. You actually want to be affirmed. You want the truth when you get advice. And I just want to point out that as adults, as spouses, as parents, leaders, whatever role you play, as we mature, we have to be seeking the truth. We have to be seeking the truth, not just affirmation. We, we can't just always be seeking people to agree with us. Sometimes that conflict helps us grow and makes us go in the right direction. So Rehoboam, he rejects the advice. And what we see here is that he is acting exactly like his father did. The way his father led, like, this modeled the way that he is acting now. And so he's being selfish. He's focused on power. All he can see is what he wants. And that's what we're seeing right here. And so he asks the young men, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke 
your father put on us. The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke, I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I'll scourge you with scorpions. So what he's really saying is, is you thought that was bad? Wait till you see what I'm going to do. You thought whips were bad? What about scorpions? So he's, he's really just starting to lash out. And this is the advice he's getting. And so three days later, verse 12, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord. We'll come back to that in just a second. To fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nabat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. So uh, all that to say, here's what's happening. This is from the Lord. This is happening because when Solomon turned away from God and God made that promise to humble his family, it's playing out right here. He's humbling Rehoboam. He's trying to teach Rehoboam a lesson. And the lesson is that if you want people to follow you, you have to do it from a place of service. You have to do it from the heart. You can't just force them to follow you. And so all of this is happening. This conflict is happening because God is humbling the family of Solomon. And we're not going to read too far ahead, but what we see later on is that Israel splits. The people totally leave. And all of this is happening because of this decision for him not to consider their needs or their wants or their, uh, what their conditions are. Because he's not willing to consider that, it breaks everything. And the last verse, 16, says, When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. Out of frustration, out of years of oppression, what they're saying is, what do we care? What do we care that you're not willing to consider us? Watch over your own house. We're done. Watch over your own house. And all because Rehoboam was not strong enough, a big enough man to suck up his pride. He couldn't suck up his pride. He, like my two-year-old, is in tunnel vision. All he can see is what he wants. All he can see is, I want power, and I'm going to get it that way. And he has no idea what's happening outside of his world. He's focused on my goals, my story, my life, my role, right? And all of this is happening because he couldn't even humble himself enough to do that. So I want to challenge us today. Um, and the challenge is out of this verse, but it, it's, it's best spoken in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes it. And, uh, and it's been eating at me for years, actually. But um, here's the verse, Philippians chapter 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, 
value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I'm going to read it one more time because I think it's that important. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This verse, like I said, has been eating at me, but like for the last year, I gotta say I've, I've read this every single day for the last year, and I wanna live this way so bad, but I can't. Every day is a battle between what I want and what God wants, you know? And it, I feel like it's a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for all of us to stop thinking about ourselves and think about others, to, to help others more than we help ourselves, to think about others more than we think about ourselves, love others more than we love ourselves. It's so hard. It's so hard. Because the world we live in, it has a different message. It says it's all about you. You got to make yourself happy. You got to do what's right for you. You have to focus on you. Even, I mean, whatever decision we make, I mean, we have the ability to do it on personal preference. Where we want to live, where we want to work, where we want to uh, go to eat, right? Even in our churches, we're able to do this. There's a comedian named John Christ, and he recently came out with all of these spoof videos that are called Church Hunters. And some of you may have seen them. Um, they're floating around Facebook. Um, they're really funny. Um, <clears throat> but it's basically church shopping. It shows these people looking at all these different churches and picking and choosing where they want to go. But it's things like, well, I worship better when the worship leader is attractive. Or I want gluten-free communion. Or I want a really hip pastor. Or I want to go to a church that has a choir and pews. Or I want to go to a church that has stadium seating. All of these things. We get so nitpicky, and it's funny, but it's also true. We do it. Every church we go to, and pastors are probably the worst at this, every church we go to, we're judging and, and picking and choosing like what we like about that and what we don't. Because everywhere we go, we walk in and we think, what am I gonna gain from this rather than what am I gonna bring to it? You know, what am I gonna gain from it rather than what I'm gonna bring to it? Um, and God, like he always does, flips society on its head and he says, it's not about you. It's not about you. I want you to play a role in my story and that role is great, but you need to get, it's not about you. And over and over again, we see this in the message of Jesus that, that he's more concerned with other people's experience than his own. And this is, this is why we like Chick-fil-A, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> I went there yesterday, and it's always a great experience, um, but if it's 30 degrees out, if it's raining, snowing, whatever it is, if it's the lunch rush, they're going to meet you at your car with their rain jackets, and they're going to have a smile on their face, and they're going to say, um, it's my pleasure to serve you, and I actually believe them when they say that. Um, unlike other fast food places, you're lucky if you're even acknowledged, um, but Chick-fil-A is a different experience, always. When I went yesterday, I was with my daughter. It was just the two of us, and we were done eating, and some guy came up to our table and said, hey, can I take that tray for you? He knew I, I had my hands full. Like, he knew I needed help. I'm a dad with a toddler sitting alone in a restaurant. Um, and so he took it upon himself 
to take my tray and throw it away, uh, which is a little thing, but it makes such a difference. And it's all because they're more concerned with your experience than their own. And I want to end today uh, by sharing a story of, of a dad who did just that. Um, and this is a story that a close friend of mine posted on Facebook, and her dad passed away a few weeks ago. And the picture that she posted with it was a swing set with her two daughters swinging as happy as can be. Um, but when I read it, I knew that it, I had to share it with you. When Jason asked me to speak this week, and I had to share it with you. And honestly, the whole message was kind of birthed out of this post from my friend. Um, and so here's what it says. This was taken two days before he was gone and two days before I noticed what I notice now, how his fingerprints were in every part of this space. His grandkids play on the swing set that he disassembled and reassembled twice, protected in the boundaries of the fence he put up. While I sat on the big swing that he hung from the tree in the yard where he tilled my mom's garden, hung the birdhouses and made a ladder for the girl's climbing tree, created a bonfire area and made his grandkids' backyard dreams come true, one discarded piece of playground equipment at a time. Last night, we ate supper at the dining table he built, one seat empty under the mason jar chandelier he built and installed. We hung all our heavy bags on the coat rack he built, sat our cups on the coffee table he built. I slept in a bed he built. Men, if you're just sitting around, get up. Learn a skill. Make your wife's house dreams come true literally build in to your home. Serve your family the best you can. It will heal hurts. Leave your fingerprints everywhere. And then when you're gone, you're not really gone. Your people can look any direction and see you and know they were loved. I wish you were really here in this picture, really here. But he kind of is, kind of always will be, in all three of those smiling faces. It's so, so moving. Leave a legacy. I love what she said. Um, leave your fingerprints everywhere. Leave your fingerprints everywhere. There's no greater imagery in my mind than service when you think of leaving your fingerprints everywhere, on everything, on everybody, on everybody. Literally build into your homes. Now, the call is not just for men. The call is not just for the carpenter type. Some people shouldn't play with power tools. But the call is this. Serve your family. Serve your neighbors, your church, your community, your schools, whatever it is, your coworkers. Like, what are you doing to leave a legacy? What are you doing to leave your fingerprints everywhere? What are you doing? You know, all through the New Testament, Paul has this central theme as, as he talks to the churches. And the theme is this, that Jesus Christ died for us so that we might become heirs. So first of all, what that tells me is Jesus Christ didn't die for us just so we could become good people, go to church, go to heaven one day. There's an action involved. There's action. There's uh, Jesus Christ died for us so that we might become heirs. And what's an heir? An heir is a successor. It's someone who carries the torch. It's someone who keeps it going. 
And so what we're called to do is go on mission. We accept Christ into our life to go on mission, to love like Jesus loved, to serve like he served. And Jesus' message all along was the least is the greatest in my kingdom. I came to serve, not to be served. All of these things, we, all of these scriptures point us to service and we know them, we, we memorize them, but do we really believe them? Do we really live like a servant? Are we really willing to pour ourselves out with nothing in return for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of someone else, not just ourselves? Because God does have great plans. God has something great in store for us, but we don't get there by by trying to build ourselves up. And so many of us get that turned around. We get there by building other people up. And so like the people at Chick-fil-A, like so many people in the Bible that Jesus touched, we need to be more concerned with their experience than our own because God says, if you want to be great, if you want to live a full life, stop being selfish. Value other people above yourself. And if you want to be great, you gotta be a servant. Let's pray.